trip. Um, maybe some of you have prayed with us uh, on the little um, conference call thing, but uh, boy, just some really neat things are happening. They got to go. The guys got to go and speak to the to a big group of military officers um, and just share the gospel, and that was really cool. And now the military is going to let. Um, they're giving some property on the military base so that uh, Chomno can start a home there for kids who have been orphaned whose parents were soldiers. And so having the opportunity to just minister right there on the base is pretty cool. And the pastor's conference and the women's conference is going really well. And I heard the people who are serving there at the orphanage, their Rose is putting them to work painting and doing all sorts of repairs, and, and uh, Patty, who's there, told me that she was so, she, Patty Hedges runs the, runs the um, uh, home there, and she said that all of our people, even though it was over 100 degrees outside, they were out there working with smiles on their faces and with great attitudes, so, um, you know, we're really happy and, and blessed, so continue to pray for them as the conference goes throughout this week, and then they'll be coming back this weekend. Let's turn in our Bibles now to the book of Titus. Titus is another one of the pastoral epistles. It comes right after 2 Timothy. We finished 2 Timothy last week, so we're going to go this week starting into the book of Titus and look at chapter 1. Titus is an interesting guy because he seemed to have a pretty important role in working with Paul and yet, we don't know a lot about him. Interestingly, like with Timothy, we read a lot about him and his relationship with Paul in the book of Acts, as well as Barnabas and Silas and other guys. But Titus is never mentioned by name in the book of Acts. But we do, Paul mentioned him in Galatians and talked about how he took Titus with him to Jerusalem when he wanted to make the point that the Holy Spirit had fallen on the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And so Titus was a Gentile. You remember Timothy was half Jewish, but Titus was completely Gentile, uncircumcised, and, and yet Paul used him as an example and said, look at this guy. Tell me that God's not working in his life. Tell me that he's not filled with the Holy Spirit. And so Titus must have been a pretty special guy to be able to have that kind of a relationship. Paul refers to him as his son, and as we'll see in chapter 1 as well. Titus is also mentioned um, quite a bit in, well, we saw, we just finished 2 Timothy, and in the end of 2 Timothy, Paul mentions Titus and says that he had gone on to Dalmatia now. So we know that at that time, Titus had been there with Paul, um, in Rome, but now had gone on to Dalmatia towards the end of Paul's ministry, um, no doubt to do some ministry there. Uh, but in 2 Corinthians, if you remember when we studied through 2 Corinthians, there was quite a section on um, the, the gift that they were collecting to take to the church back in Jerusalem. And Paul was telling the Corinthians that he is sending a delegation to collect the money that they had collected and then to take it on. And, and Titus was the leader of that delegation, 
and was the, the one who Paul was saying, hey, he's a brother in the Lord, you can trust him as if he was me, and gave him that important role. Um, it, Titus had also been involved in the church in Corinth. He was the one who was there to address a lot of the problems. He had come, Paul said, and reported back to Paul about what's going on in Corinth and the questions that some, that some of the people there had. And then Titus was the guy who took the book of 2 Corinthians and delivered it to Corinth again, and along with then collecting the money and heading on to Jerusalem. So we see him mentioned in, in Galatians and 2 Corinthians and 2 Timothy, and of course in the book of Titus, but not in the book of Acts. This letter was written, um, as you'll see, Titus was um, there on Crete, an island off the shore of Greece, and he was in doing missionary work there and pastoral work, and Paul had apparently left him there to try to straighten things out. And probably Paul had already told Titus everything he was supposed to do, but this letter that he sent to Crete, to Titus in particular, was because there were people who were questioning whether Titus really had the apostolic authority he was a younger guy, apparently, from what Paul says in chapter 3. And, and so, like, Timothy had an issue with people um, accepting and respecting the authority that he had to come in and take the leadership in the church. And so this letter was probably written so that he would have it on paper to be able to say, here was what Paul told me to do. Here's what the Apostle Paul has commissioned me with. And so Paul kind of um, spends a little more time in his introduction establishing who he is and what his ministry was about, and then again passing on that commission to Titus to acknowledge that he was asking Titus to do this. It was probably written, I would say, in the early 60s, back in the hippie days. No. <laughs> 60s literally, probably about 62, because there's no mention, maybe 63 AD, there's no mention of um, Nero's persecution or anything like that, and so um, Paul wasn't yet in Rome, and the Nero's persecution primarily started around 64 AD, so this was probably before that, so figure 62, 63 AD. And let's pick up with verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God. Now, in a lot of Paul's introductions, he calls himself a bondservant. But the general introduction that Paul would use would be Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. It's kind of interesting that here, and only here, he calls himself a bondservant of God. And he takes some time really establishing that this isn't just Christianity, this is from God himself. Because there were people there, uh, some of the issues that they had, apparently there were some uh, Judaizers who had come to Crete and were trying to tell people that you needed to be Jewish, you needed to um, you know, follow the Jewish law, follow all their rules, um, be circumcised and all that kind of stuff. And so he wants to make it clear that, that it was 
God who commissioned him. Now, as a result, the book has some strong teachings as to the fact that Jesus Christ is God. And we see over in chapter 2, one of the strongest statements of the deity of Christ that, that there is in Titus 2.13, where he says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about that more when we get to chapter 2. But even here, he's laying the groundwork by saying, I'm working for God. Now, there were various Old Testament prophets who were referred to as doulos or servants of God, but he identifies himself and puts himself in that category. And an apostle, one sent out, and he's probably using apostle in the formal sense of having apostolic authority, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness, this is a long run-on sentence, in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. All one sentence from Paul all the way down. So we'll, let's look at this quickly. He's saying that he was a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Those weren't contradictory at all, as we'll see in a couple verses. And he says, according to, and, and the word according to in the Greek, the word kata, he uses like four times in this sentence. And so he's really defining terms. He's really making, he's trying to be as clear as he can possibly be in terms of who he is and what he is to do. According to the faith of God's elect, and again, he doesn't bother explaining that. They're, they are those who are chosen by God. But it's interesting that they are also those who are God's elect by faith and, and the acknowledgement of the truth. And so this business, and it's really important, I think, that we not water down the fact that if you're a Christian, you're elect. God chose you. Long before you were around, God had a plan that included you. And yet... That doesn't mean that you didn't have a say in the matter, that you didn't have a choice. It doesn't mean that you didn't have responsibility to accept Jesus Christ. And whenever the scripture talks about election, there is also in the same context something that, that throws the monkey wrench in the work so that we can't necessarily comprehend it completely. And I don't care whether you are a staunch Calvinist, I love you. I don't care if you're a staunch Arminian, I love you. I don't care if you just admit you're confused about the whole thing. Personally, I just believe it all. And I believe that it's, you know, to those who believe, you know, they're the ones that become the sons of God. As, as John said, as many as receive him, to them gave he power to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. But Paul said, what I am sharing, and I am an apostle of that which is, is according to the faith of God's elect. So those who are a, part, a real part of the church, 
those who really are God's people, their faith, their belief, their pistis, as we've talked about, uh, as we were talking about, I think, last week, um, the concept of what the faith is. He said, I am an apostle of that faith, of those who are chosen by God, and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. He said, where I'm coming from is the truth. And people who are elect and people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ are people who acknowledge the truth. They know it. They assent to it. They believe in it. And it's an interesting phrase there, the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with, again, it's that word kata, with godliness. And this is, a, this is an important theme throughout the book of Titus, and really, in a, to a lesser extent, throughout the Bible. The idea that believing the right things has, a, has an impact on the way you live your life. And he makes it really clear, and you'll see later on in this chapter, even he points out about false um, teachers and false Christians. There are a whole lot of people who say the right things, but the proof is in the pudding. Now, salvation comes as a gift of God's grace, accepted by faith, and it's nothing that we can do, no works that we do that even help our own salvation. We're not saved by grace and kept by works. It's all by grace. And yet, how do you know that that appropriation of God's grace has happened? How do you know that God really is working in your life. We saw in 2 Corinthians where Paul said, hey, check yourself out and make sure that you really are of the household of faith. And that's a legitimate concern. And so in this book, he's wanting Titus to understand and really drilling this home that real faith results in works. Now we're going to see that in spades when we study the book of James in another month or so. But at this point, he is saying, again, that acknowledgement of the truth accords with godliness. There's a transformation in the life. There's a godly reflection of the character of God that always results when someone really has acknowledged the truth, when someone really is believing the truth. But Paul is going to emphasize to Titus Godliness comes from the truth. Godliness doesn't bring the truth. Because the people who are there on Crete creating problems are people who um, are teaching legalism. They're teaching righteousness from the outside in. And Paul wants to express in no uncertain terms, no, it doesn't work that way. And the truth is, it doesn't work that way. People who try to live by legalism People who are the most judgmental, legalistic people you'll ever meet, the truth is they're hiding, they're covering horrible sins. Because sin can only be handled by grace. The only way our sin is dealt with is by grace. And so when we try to deal with our sin by making ourselves be better, or making each other be better, or brainwashing each other to try not to do those bad things... At best, it leads to a cover-up, but it never leads to genuine deliverance. 
It never leads to a genuine work of the Holy Spirit. This is frustrating because as you walk with God, and especially as he changes your life, you see how much better off you are with the new life, living life according to what God says, and you want that for others. And and you desire to see that take place in the lives of people that you love. And so what you want to do is just tell them, come on, just do this. Just fake this. Just act this way. Humor me and be this way. And an awful lot of teaching is really nothing more than that. Trying to polish the outside, hoping that somehow eventually it'll sink into the inside. But, but accepting Jesus Christ by faith and, and receiving his grace will always make a transformation in us from the inside out. That's the way, that's the way God works. And so the acknowledgement of the truth accords with godliness. Godliness will happen. If you're not like God, then there's a truth problem. And, and this isn't just, okay, you have the right doctrine. But, and, and, and it isn't just that, okay, I don't do these big sins or whatever. No, the character of God begins to shine forth from our lives. And primarily that's seen by the fruit of the Spirit. And if your life doesn't show the fruit of the Spirit, if you're, frankly, if you're not a loving, joyous, peaceful person, then there's something that you're missing in the truth. There's something there, and it may just be you're not even being honest with yourself and allowing the Word of God to convict you. Maybe you're just using the Word of God to convict other people and to judge them. But there's a truth issue when godliness isn't happening in your life. And the fix isn't to act more godly. The fix is to go to God and say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. When we are truly honest and open with God, godliness happens. And so Paul's just saying, I'm the real deal. I'm an apostle of the faith that's shared by everyone who's elect of God and everyone who's come to understand that the truth accords with godliness, leads with godliness. And he says, in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began. He said, this is all, what I'm preaching, what I'm teaching, what I represent is a part of a plan that God had even before time. Scriptures talk about Jesus even being sacrificed before the foundation of the world. See, God always knew what was going to happen. God always knew what would happen in the Garden of Eden and with Adam and Eve. And he always knew you because he had dreamed up your DNA and he knew exactly who you would be. And he knew all the circumstances and your environment and everything else. And so what Paul is saying is this isn't some ad hoc plan whereby we're kind of winging it. And especially he's saying this isn't something that I invented because, oh boy, we got to do something. Jesus died, now he's gone. He's going, no, this was always God's plan. It's not like God had an Old Testament plan 
the law, and then he quickly threw together this idea of his son being sacrificed. The law could never save people. It was impossible, not because of the law, because of people. And so God always had this whole redemptive plan, and Paul is saying, what we're preaching and what our life is all about, it is as big as eternity. It started before creation, and it will end in heaven. And he said, that's the total package, and, and that's the program of which I am an apostle. It was promised before time began, and it's in hope of eternal life, and God can't lie. He knew that he was speaking what God had spoken, and he said, God can't lie, I'm telling the truth. A bit intimidating to somebody who would maybe be questioning Paul, or somebody who's questioning Titus, and now Paul comes in and lays this on him, and that was exactly how it was intended. He says, but has in due time, right on time, manifested his word through preaching which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. He said, I have been called to preach, and in this time, this is the way that God chose to communicate his message. This was all a part of his plan. This really demonstrates to us and reminds us of how important preaching is and declaring the word of God. Because that is, during this time, that is how God communicates his word. Now, there's nothing wrong with concerts, and there's nothing wrong with skits, and there's nothing wrong with creative dancing expressions of whatever, but it better be, it's got to be, preaching has to be at the center of anything that's going to communicate the gospel because... That's how God has chosen to do it. And so Paul's making that clear, and he says, this is how God reveals the word. And it's funny because every few years, somebody comes up with an article that says, the days of preaching are over. We need to come up with newer methods. This is the day of social networking, or this is the day of, um, you know, visual arts, or this is the day of dramatic presentations, or this is the, the day of creative video, or whatever. But no, this day, like every day, is the day of preaching. Somebody has to get out there and just declare the Word of God. The Word of God as God's revelation, and the Word of God as a person of Jesus Christ. And he says, that's been committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Now, as he says God our Savior here in verse 3, he's probably, perhaps anyway, referring to God the Father as Savior, but it's hard to say, as we'll see in the next verse, but at any rate, it's clear that God is our Savior, right? You get that? But look at verse 4. He says, after saying to Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. I'd suggest if you ever write in your Bible, circle God our Savior in verse 3 and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior in verse 4. And it's always fun to show that to people who don't believe that Jesus Christ is God. You go, well, who's our Savior? 
God's our Savior. Really? Well, this says the Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior, um, and Paul put it in there for a good reason. But he addresses it in verse 4 to Titus, a true son in our common faith. Now, there were some people who, who thought that Titus was perhaps Paul's biological son, because that word true son means your real son. It's an emphasis of he's really my son. But we know from Galatians that, that uh, Titus was completely Gentile and Paul is completely Jew, so that wasn't the case. But what he's saying is he probably led Titus to the Lord. We don't know where. But he, was, he worked with him so closely and he saw him growing and he supported what he did and he gave Titus really important jobs to do and things like that. And he felt so close to him that he said, you know, no, you're not like a son to me. You are a son to me. You've become that, that real son to me in our common faith because we, we are united in Christ. We, we have that same kind of confidence. And Paul saw in Titus the kinds of qualities that he knew that the church would need, especially as he would soon be incapacitated and ultimately um, martyred. So quite a compliment. And then, of course, typical in his greetings, grace, mercy, and peace. Grace, he did it for nothing. He did it for free. It's just simply God showing grace to his people. Mercy, as a result of his grace, he doesn't have to give you what you really deserve, which is judgment. And the peace that's the result of that, you can be at peace with God, you can be at peace with yourself, you can be at peace with others. The more you understand about grace and mercy, the more of a peaceful life that you'll lead from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. So, verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. So basically two things that he had asked Titus to do there in Crete. Now in Crete, the church apparently was pretty messed up in some ways, it sounds like. But the church had already spread throughout Crete. We don't know. Paul had been to Crete, but there were already Christians there when he got there. So we're not sure who initially preached the gospel in Crete. But being an island, a lot of people come and go. And so no doubt someone who had accepted Christ either... Um, in Asia Minor, perhaps even over in Jerusalem, had made their way to Crete and declared the message. But it was kind of a mess. And so he told Titus, there are two things I ask you to do. First of all, set in order the things that are lacking. And secondly, appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. First of all, set in order. Things needed to be organized. And, and God is concerned about this in the church. And we see several references as Paul talks about the importance of order in the church. Now, that doesn't mean just regimentation, but it means that you ought to be smooth and have your act together. It should be well-managed. It should be done well. And apparently, they were really sloppy, and things were kind of out of control. And so um, people involved in leadership who were teaching things that they shouldn't, as we will see. Others 
who were leaders who really weren't spiritually qualified to be leaders. There were other problems that were going on there. But the bottom line of it is, and the thing that I think we take from this is, it's important that the church be set in order, that we take seriously the need to really manage the things of God and to do a good job of it, not to be sloppy, not to be haphazard. But then secondly, to appoint elders in every city, as I had commanded, you see, he had already given them this mandate. Um, so in each city, they probably had a few churches by this point because the churches were, um, you know, there was a church in Crete, there was everybody, but they didn't really have a place to get together. And so each city had at least one um, church at a home and probably more. And so the idea was make sure that there's somebody who's in charge. Make sure that you go and appoint elders. Now, this doesn't tell us how elders were appointed. It doesn't mean necessarily that apostles need to appoint elders. It doesn't even mean that the elders weren't chosen by the people who, who knew them. He was just putting Titus in charge, and now he goes into the qualifications of an elder in order to say there need to be people who are in leadership. There are some people today that believe that the church does better without leadership. And I understand where they're coming from because leaders have the potential and often do really mess up a church. Especially a strong leader has a great capacity to do a lot of damage. And a, somebody who leads the church as a dictator, someone who has absolute power, as you know, um, I'm sure you've heard the, the quote from Lord Acton is very true. He said, Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so people see that happen in the church, and they rebel against that. But see, the truth is we need leaders in the church. We need pastors. If you have a church without a pastor, then all you have at best is a pooling of ignorance. All you have is like a bunch of people sitting in a group together and saying, I don't know, what do you think? Well, what do you think? What's your opinion? And the scriptures tell us a lot of things, and somebody has to study it enough to be able to share it with others. And again, as Paul said, it's about preaching. So he said, put pastors. Now, you could call these guys pastors. You could call them elders. You could call them bishops. The terms are used interchangeably in the scripture. But he said, man, make sure there are leaders out there. This is, this is partly what one reason why Jeff Henneforth is going to be moving to Cambodia because there's a real revival. There's a lot of people getting saved over there and little churches that are being started. And there are guys who are kind of leading the churches, but they don't really have training. And so a lot of what, what we're trying to do over there is to get a, a school of ministry organized whereby these men can come and get some training. And then throughout these areas in Cambodia, we'll see healthy churches. If you don't do that, the churches can get unhealthy really quick. And there are a lot of really weird groups and a lot of kind of kooky cults and things like that that start really good and right on, but because they don't have any mutual accountability and because they don't have godly leadership, they can really go off the deep end. And so it's important that these elders be somewhat connected. 
And, and it shouldn't just be a guy on his own doing church. There needs to be that accountability. There needs to be an openness, and there needs to be qualifications in order to do that job to maintain the order of the church as a whole and to keep the church going in the direction that it should be going. No lone ranger leaders. But he says, I told you to appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. The word there for elder is presbyteros, from which we get presbytery or presbyterians. And, and the Presbyterian church is a church that's ruled by elders. And so they take it from this Greek word. Now the same guys, as you look down um, in verse 7, they're called bishops. The word for bishop is episkopos in the Greek. And the Episcopalian form of church government comes from the term episkopos. And the idea there is that there are people who are above the local pastors, the local elders, who kind of oversee them and rule them. The word episkopos, you know, the word scopos, like a telescope, means to see, and epi means upon, and so it means to kind of oversee or look upon. And so they emphasize a form of church government whereby there are those at the top that oversee the elders. A Presbyterian form emphasizes the elders and having a mutual accountability with a multiplicity of elders. Um, there's a whole different form of church government called congregationalism that Americans invented. Because we don't like anybody telling us what to do, so we want to vote on everything, <laughs> and that's congregational. Um, which one is the biblical form? Oh, and by the way, there's also just a pastor-led, um, more or less monarchy form of church government that is becoming more and more popular nowadays, too. The truth is, the Bible doesn't say how the churches should be organized. And again, here in this context, Paul uses the term elder and bishop, or presbyteros and episkopos, interchangeably, which really confuses. But the truth is, the scriptures never tell us how church government should be organized or what the best form of church government is. All the Bible does is over and over again tell us the character of the people who should be in leadership in a church. And if their character is right, it can be more of an Episcopalian, it can be more of a Presbyterian, it can be more of a Congregational, or it can be a, a dictatorship. And if it's godly leaders, it's going to be fine. But when the leaders aren't godly, there is no form of government that will prevent the corruption that can happen in a church when her leaders aren't godly. And so he goes into the qualifications for elders or episcopos, bishops. Um, and as Paul went through a very similar list of qualifications when he was talking to Timothy, um, as he was there in Ephesus, and now he's given the same kind of thought to Titus. And he says, and the overarching thing is in verse 6, if a man is blameless. The idea is, not that he's perfect, but that when it comes to these kinds of qualifications, the guy shouldn't have a glaring disqualification. 
No one's perfect, and everyone who is in leadership in a church needs to work on developing these characteristics in their life, for sure. But he said, if somebody's just obviously totally blowing it in one of these areas, they shouldn't be in leadership in the church. So blameless. Uh, The husband of one wife. And we'll go over these quickly because we covered them pretty much in detail when Paul told Timothy about them. But, but literally, that, that means a one-woman man. And people have written lots of books about, does that mean that you can't be divorced? Does that mean that even if your wife had died and you have another one? Does that mean just one at a time? Or does that mean no bigamy? Or does that, well, he's talking about the characteristics of a man. And, and, I, and it would have been easy for him to say a guy who hasn't been divorced if that's what he wanted to say. Or, a guy, or even if he wanted to say he has to be married um, if that's what he wanted to say. Or any of these things, it, the, the language is there and able to do it. The reason why he said a one-woman man is what he's saying is this is the character of a man. Now, obviously, if a guy is unfaithful to his wife... Um, there's something wrong in his character that he's not a one-woman man. But a man who doesn't cheat on his wife and who's been married to the same woman for his whole life, but if he's constantly flirting and hitting on other women and lusting after them and getting involved in pornography and things like that, he's not a one-woman man at heart, even if he's technically a husband of one wife. And at the same time, Just because somebody has a failure in their past doesn't mean that God hasn't done a work in their life and can't make them a one-woman man. So this is is a characteristic that God will do in your life. And, And this is a difficult one, too, because by nature, really, I don't think any man is a one-woman man. This comes from a commitment this comes from discipline. This comes from sp- spiritual growth as you develop in that dedication to your spouse. Now, I should have said, told the women to cover their ears when I said that because <laughs> I know that most women believe that their husband could never, ever be attracted to anyone except them. Um, sorry. Um, <laughs> it's not the case. But... God can develop in us that devotion and dedication whereby we make that commitment and say, I am committing myself to you, and therefore I am choosing to reject other opportunities. I am choosing to to keep myself pure. I am choosing to, to dwell on you and to turn away from temptation and to resist that And that's what I want as a part of my life. And every Christian man should be that one-woman man. This isn't primarily about, you know, well, have you been divorced or not or any of that kind of stuff, or even have you ever been married. It's It's that characteristic of loyalty to the wife. Because if you can't control yourself to be loyal to one woman, then what business do you have doing the work of God? And how effective are you going to be ministering to other people? How, and, and, it's, and it blows my mind sometimes when pastors, like they'll, they'll counsel a woman and then they get involved with the woman. And it's like, to me, that is as gross as child molesting. 
Because you're taking someone who's vulnerable and they're coming and they want to hear from God. They legitimately just want to be helped. And, and sometimes these guys are using Jesus as their wingman, you know, just to like get chicks. And that's so disgusting to do that. It just repulses me to even think about that. And guys are so stupid that somehow when a woman shows an interest in them, and, and, it, and it's because they see God in them. I mean, let's face it, most pastors are so ugly, they could never get a woman, you know, <laughs> if God didn't blind her eyes. But a woman sees God in the guy, and then the guy takes advantage of that. It's such horrible undue influence. It's an awful thing. And that's why for pastors it's especially important that you are, as much as you can insulate yourself, that you're immune to using the ministry in that way. And, and that's why this is such an important requirement. And it is something that should be developed in all of our lives. Everyone should aspire to this. Um, having faithful children who aren't accused of dissipation or being rowdy and out of control drunkards or insubordination. Um, the children of the elder tells you something. And again, a part of this, again, this is about character, and you have to look at, I mean, people, kids have their own choices, and I, I wouldn't say necessarily that someone would be excluded from being a pastor just because they have a, a child who's grown, who has chosen to reject Jesus Christ. Because, I mean, when God was the parent of Adam and Eve, they rejected God. God gives people that choice. However, the point here is you can look at how someone handles their family and it'll let you know whether or not they ought to be involved in leadership in the church, in handling people. Because in another place, Paul says, if you can't manage your own household, how can you manage the church of Jesus Christ? And so in other places, and again, here when you're talking about a one-woman man, if someone has just a a horrible marriage and their kids are out of control, it's an indication that something's wrong. If you, haven't, if you haven't been able to live the Christian life in such a way that it makes your kids want to live it, maybe you ought to go back to the drawing board and work on your walk with God instead of you know, just going, whoop, that's my kids, that's okay. You know, now, you win some and you lose some. And Jesus spent three years ministering to Judas but um, still, the point here is how someone's kids are will tell you something about that person. It can be very informative. There are some people that I have hold in very high regard because I see their kids and I see what their kids are like. Now, this isn't this isn't anything about having them stand in a straight line, having them say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, and call everybody Mr. and Mrs. or any of that nonsense. It's, it's about them loving God. It's about them having a heart for Him. If you're a parent and you see your kids expressing an interest in the things of God and wanting to love God and even asking tough questions about God, I'm telling you, you're doing something right. Hang in there and thank God for that because our kids are a reflection of the environment that we create at home spiritually. 
And so he says, uh, for a bishop, episcopos, must be blameless, says it again, as a steward of God, as somebody who's handling God's things. A steward is someone who had a responsibility over somebody else's affairs. And so again, the idea is how he manages his family is going to be connected with how he's going to manage the things of God. He's a steward. He's in a responsible position. And he shouldn't be self-willed. Shouldn't be too stubborn. Shouldn't always have to have it his way. Shouldn't be someone who you're constantly fighting to try to convince them off of their position. That's, that doesn't work when you're in leadership. Not quick-tempered. Not having too short of a fuse. Going off too fast. And not given to wine doesn't necessarily mean that they would be complete teetotalers. Um, literally, what it means is not near wine. And so part of the, some people believe that the implication is that he shouldn't be an alcoholic, that he shouldn't be somebody who always has a, a drink in his hand. Um, for me, I just don't drink alcohol at all, and I really try to stay away from it because that's the most literal way that I can not be near it. Uh, but that's just me. I'm not going to pretend like that's what this means necessarily. This was an expression that they would use as if they said somebody was near the wine, it meant they're never very far from it. But obviously, if you're a steward of the things of God, you need to have your wits about you. And he goes on to say some other things that would go along with that as well. But wine, and, and if wine does affect your capacity as even in Ephesians, it com contrasted being drunk with wine with being filled with the Spirit. If it has that kind of a, an effect at all, safest thing is just to stay away from it, no doubt. Um, but I'm not legalistic about that for, for you. I am for me. Um, not violent, either physically or verbally. Not greedy for money. Not just constantly wanting to make more but hospitable. The word there means a lover of foreigners. So somebody who has a heart for others, a heart for people who are different, a heart for people who come in who are new, a heart for those in other parts of the world. That No one should be involved in, in leadership in the church, and really everyone in the church should have this heart of not wanting to just be a click with people we already know, but to be open to others reaching out to them. I am so thankful for the many people that we have in our church who express love and support for people who are in other places in the world. This is exactly what hospitality really was there, as well as welcoming people who are in, who come for the first time. But I, I commend many of you on that. He says, a lover of what is good. Good people, good things. Just... I appreciate when things are done well. I appreciate when things are right. We should, we should have scrutiny. We should, it, it should matter to us when good things happen and when things are done well. Um, Sober-minded. That is somebody who has their head about them, isn't, isn't constantly frazzled and out of control, scatterbrained. Um, just, that is, they're fair, they treat everyone the same. Holy, they have a, 
concept of, of God, a, an intimacy with God, and that spirituality that's so important, and, and self-controlled. And that one, Paul has a thing about that. If people can't control themselves, they'll never have a solid walk with God. It's why listing the fruit of the Spirit starts with love and ends with self-control. And it's one reason why I think it's important for us to have discipline in our lives in areas that would seem to not matter. You know, and even in terms of what we eat or that we exercise or how we schedule our time or, you know, how we educate ourselves or how we study, how we, uh, there are a whole lot of things in in our lives that give us an opportunity to demonstrate self-control. And it's really interesting how when you have a victory of self-control in one area of your life, often it carries over into other areas of your life. Because you are either someone who is a victim of what happens to you, or you are a proactive person who makes things happen by hearing from God and doing what God tells you to do and keeping your life under control. And I, I, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty about having some ice cream on your way home or about going home to a messy house or whatever. Let, I'm not going to beat you up. Let God talk to you about it. But the fact is, self-control is something that's important to him. And so what is it, and I ask myself this often, what is it in my life that is not showing self-control? And for the sake of my own spiritual development, I want to discipline myself, not legalistically, and not because I think it's going to make, me, make God happy or make me a better Christian, just because it's good for me. Discipline is good for you. And discipline is something that if you don't have it, things fall apart in a whole lot of other areas. And so that was where he, he uh, you know, he says that that's what an elder, that's what a leader ought to be. And in other places, again, like Galatians, he says that's what a Christian who's filled with the Spirit ought to be like. And then he says also, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So it should be somebody who can carry the truth and communicate the truth. And when there's somebody who's messing up or confused or someone who's teaching something wrong, you are able to quickly point out the error in what they're doing. And you're able to literally convince them. And not that your whole life is all about going around and arguing with people, but it's just being able to give a reason for the hope that is within you, being able to communicate truth, and having the guts to sometimes speak up when God opens the door for you to do so to, um, to help those who have fallen into error. And then, speaking of error, he goes into talking about some of them. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. He said, within Christianity, within those who are professing to be believers, there are some who are really slick talkers. 
They are idle talkers. They can talk and people want to listen, even if they don't have anything to say. And there's a bunch of baloney out there. There's a bunch of nonsense out there. And the motive of these people is simply to cash in and make money. They're only trying to make a profit. And if you want to make a profit, you have to come up with something new. You have to come up with something that nobody else has ever said. You'll never make a profit just saying what everybody else says, writing a book that's just like another book that was already written. And so he said there are people like that, but the way he describes them is they're insubordinate, they're deceivers. And a lot of them are, are of the circumcision. They're people who are trying to tell people, you need to be under the law, you need to be more Jewish. And he said, somebody's got to shut these people up in the church. Someone has to say, that is wrong. And nobody wants to do that. You know, and boy, I, and I really walk a, a fine and a sensitive line here because there is a lot, and I, you know, I have people ask me all the time about what about this teacher, what about this guy, and what do you think about this woman or whatever. And I don't want to be someone who's known for being against everyone, and I, and I don't want to put down people just because they have a different way of doing things than I do or that um, you know, I, I may be jealous of their success or... No, there are a whole lot of reasons why people criticize other, other ministers. But it's important somehow that, that people hear the truth. And if I do this, I try to do it subtly. I generally try not to name names of people and things like that. But as we go through the Word, I try to communicate it clearly enough that when you go home and turn on your TV and you hear some of this stuff, you'll just go... Man, that's completely contrary to what the Bible says. That's just not, that's not right. That doesn't feel right. That isn't comfortable to me. And so Paul is just saying, hey, you've got to have the leaders in the church speak up for the truth. And sometimes if there's, if there's heresy in the church, they need to speak up against it. They need to say, this isn't right, and you will not be teaching this in our church. You will not be communicating this. It's partly why I just don't let people put whatever flyer they want to put out in the foyer or, you know, people come every week, they have a petition they want people to sign or whatever. It's like, you know what? No, that's not what we do. That's not what we're about. You know, it's just, if other people want to do it, fine. It's okay. I'm not judging them. But there's a responsibility within our church to make sure that everything in our church as much as possible represents what our understanding is of how God wants things to be. And so he says, these guys are doing a lot of damage and somebody has to shut them up. There are a whole lot of people who think their, their mission is to shut people like that up. Um, it's not mine, but I need to be willing to do it at times and, and uh, it, it, sometimes it just needs to happen. And then he goes on and says, uh, this testament, oh, in verse 12, one of them, a Cretan, a prophet of their own, it's actually Epimenides who was a Cretan who, who wrote, oh, 5th century B.C. He had said this about Cretans, and he was a Cretan prophet. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. <laughs> 
nice. And that would be like saying, Americans are this. And so he said, yeah, he said that, and he's one of their prophets, and I agree with him. <laughs> this testimony is true. Therefore, when they act like that, when they're lying, when they're evil, when they're lazy, rebuke them sharply. And the idea there would be personally, confront them. Not, not just go you know, blab to everybody else about it. Just go confront people when they're, when they're acting like this, that they may be sound in the faith. That the idea is trying to fix them, trying to correct them. Maybe they can be corrected. Not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. And then he says, to the pure, all things are pure. And to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. An interesting little proverb that he gives here. It reminds you of Jesus when, in, on several occasions when he said it's, went to the legalists who were saying, oh, the disciples ate on the Sabbath or whatever. They ate without cleaning their hands. And he said, it's not what goes into you that makes you defiled. It's what comes out of you. And Paul here is saying, to the pure, all things are pure. It doesn't mean if you're pure, you can do anything that you want to do. But what he's saying is, worry about the heart. There are a lot of people who are bragging about how good they are, but like the Pharisees, as Jesus told them, you're like whited sepulchers on the outside, and you're like rotted bones on the inside. And he's going, you know what? Worry about the heart. And it's true that it, so often, people who are always criticizing other people and people who are always judging other people, and some of the most legalistic people that you'll ever meet are people who have a serious problem on the inside. And I heard somebody say one time, that you listen to what a pastor screams about all the time, and you'll know what his problem is. And there have been some historical cases where the guys who preach the loudest about um, intimacy and things like that are sometimes the ones that end up having the problem with it. Um, that's one reason I don't want to be a specialist on anything. I just want to teach the Bible, and that's why I just go through it. But I wouldn't want to be a guy who's known as, yeah, you, you want to hear about sex and intimacy, get him up there, because uh, let's ask him for trouble. But again, judging other people because there's something inside your heart that you're hiding, and you're trying to think that you're better than other people. And if somebody has a pure heart, a lot of times things that somebody might judge would be pure to them. If your heart is right, there are some things that you can do, and it's not going to create a problem for you. You know, there are some people who, who believe that, um, you know, it's wrong to, this was a thing in the church, it still is in parts of the country, that men and women shouldn't go swimming together. And there are a lot of people who just think it's a sin to go to the beach. Well, if you have a problem with that, maybe it is a sin for you to go to the beach. Maybe there are certain movies that it would be a sin for you to watch, but don't judge other people because if somebody's heart's pure, sometimes it's not going to be a problem for them. So don't impute your heart on everybody else and don't put your rules and your expectations on everybody else. What we all need to worry about is our heart. And when the heart is right, it's amazing how not only a pure heart results in pure actions, but a pure heart results in less picking at other people and less legalism and less emphasis on the exterior. 
exterior isn't the thing. It's the heart. It's the interior. And so he says, even their mind and conscience are defiled. They're rotten from within. And he said, finally, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So there are people who say they know God, but the way they live their life makes that a lie. It's what John said. If you say that you know God, but you don't love the brethren, you don't love Christians, you're not a loving person, you're fooling yourself. You're a liar. You don't know God if you're not a loving person. And that was the criteria that God laid out as here's how you know somebody knows God. It's affected in the way that they live. And so here he says, you can deny him with your works. Now part of this is, why don't you start having Christianity work in your life before you start telling other people what to do, before you start judging other people? If you're not someone who's walking in joy, if you're not someone who's walking in love, if you're not someone who the Christian life is actually working for you, don't tell everybody else what to do. And don't use your meanness and your bad attitude to try to rub off on other people by judging them. See, if Christianity works for you, as he says here, <laughs> your works either prove it or deny it. If it's working for you, people are going to be interested in your life, and they're going to see how you live, and they're going to want to imitate it. They'll go, well, maybe if I... Um, prayed more. Maybe if I got up earlier to spend time with the Lord, maybe if I acted like that, maybe my life would be better. And, and so, but at the same time, if your works deny it, then figure out what's wrong with your heart. Get back to the heart of things with God and start there. And when it starts to show up in the way you live your life, now you're back on track. Now it's working. When you work on a car, it's not running well. You start trying different adjustments, maybe replacing different parts until it starts running smoothly. Now you're in, in business. But you don't say you're done and you don't want to go get in a race or head off across the country until you got the thing running smoothly. And so the idea is these guys say they know God, but the truth is their lives aren't running smoothly at all. They're a mess. And they're spending all their energy and time judging other people, telling other people what to do, turning Christianity into a bunch of rules and regulations from the outside. He goes, if, if your works don't show it, keep your mouth shut. And he's telling Titus, shut these guys up. Don't let them abuse your people. Don't let them get up in front of people and beat them up every week because they have a problem themselves. Um, so... Good advice, and uh, boy, you know, we're almost out of time, but I'm not going to rush through communion. I understand it if, if uh, any of you need to, to leave, um, you have things you need to do, but we're just going to take a few minutes to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and I hope as many of you as possible can stay for that. So if the, if the men will go get the stuff, and we'll be passing it out, but let's pray first. Lord, thank you for your word tonight for Titus chapter 1, for Paul sharing these things, because it tells us not only what leaders in the church should be, but it tells us what we should all be.
because we should all aspire to be leaders. And so God caused, prick our hearts in areas where we are deficient. Help us not to look at this and judge others, but help us to scrutinize our own lives and to use these as matters for prayer that we would ask you to develop in us these kinds of qualities. And so, Lord, we we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.